Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks, and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows, Babylon 5 versus Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing pretty well. Doing much better uh, after my COVID scare. So feeling, feeling a lot better than last week. <laughs> That's good. You had the, the short COVID, not the long COVID. Apparently I don't have the long term. My smell's coming back. So... That's good news. Good, good. And I, I, only, I only noticed one symptom uh, on the podcast when we, we were doing our last uh, X-Men versus X-Men 92 versus Young Justice podcast. We both kind of trailed off at the end there. Yeah, uh, apparently you're, you, it really does affect your brain. So in case you're wondering, that, that's some pretty bad fog. You, you need all those brain cells, Matt. You can't afford to lose anymore. Uh, I agree. I really do. I've got to have those brain cells. <laughs> All right, so tonight we're talking uh, Babylon 5 Season 2 Episode 19 by JMS's Watch Order, which is Divided Loyalties, which originally aired on the 11th of October 1995, and we're talking about uh, Deep Space Nine Season 2 Episode 23 Family Business, which originally aired on the 15th of May 1995. So in the A-plot of Divided Loyalties, an injured and frantic Lita Alexander returns bearing accusations of an involuntary psychor mole on the station, and that mole turns out to be... Dun-dun-dun! Spoilers! Spoilers! Talia Winters. What? So, uh, Matt, as uh, somebody who's been uh, preaching the uh, the good news, the gospel of uh, Susan Ivanova as a traitor, should not be trusted, how do you feel about this revelation? Uh... I mean, I was kind of shocked at first, but then I kind of read some of the backstory to it, and apparently Talia Winters wanted to have, like, basically her own show, and uh, the actress that plays her, and uh, just didn't didn't jive well with JMS. He, he could only put her in so many episodes, and she decided to call it quits and leave. 
I think there's allegedly some other backstory to that too, which is the actress who I believe is named Andrea Thompson. Correct. And uh, uh, Jerry Doyle, who's the uh, guy playing Garibaldi. Uh, apparently, they had a pretty, uh, pretty brutal divorce and uh, weren't really on speaking terms and couldn't really work together anymore. I, I think that's what I've heard. And so, yeah, like the public facing reason was that uh, the actress playing Winters wanted a more prominent role, but uh, apparently this kind of uh, very unamicable divorce between uh, the actress playing Winters and the actor playing Garibaldi also had something to do with it. Yeah, so that's why she actually you know, left the show. This is her swan song here this episode. Do you uh, expect to see her back? N- no, I don't think so, unless she comes back as some kind of like other entity, you know, kind of like Jason Ironheart, how he was... Some kind of space god thing, whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she, she'll ascend from her uh, psychor death of personality state. Yeah, a, a P, P20 or whatever he's supposed to be. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I guess I can say this without spoiling it for you because it's a sort of negative spoiler. Um, she never, She never does come back, which was kind of a surprise to me. I... I don't know, like when I when I first watched this episode last year, it felt very abrupt and I kind of expected them to like come back around to it, to her at some point, especially because like, I I guess it's fair to say that Lyda Alexander, uh, the original telepath, stays on the show, but she's kind of has a pretty like unstable character arc. So there's a lot of opportunities potentially where they could have written her off and brought brought uh winters back and they they never do which i i think was maybe more down to like personality clashes between the actress and jms and uh more more than anything else yeah when we get to the end of the series we're going to, have to compare some of these things like uh the exit of winters versus the exit of sheridan <laughs> yeah can, there's there's some good talk there i just i don't want to get into it yet and i really don't know the full extent of sheridan's role in the whole series so I'm going to hold back yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. I guess uh, since we got so excited about the A plot, we skipped over the B plot. So I'll give the B plot briefly, which is uh, Garibaldi has convinced Sheridan to bring Winters into their little counter-conspiracy conspiracy, even as Ivanova and Winters experience massive sexual tension. We kind of already talked about the departure of, departure of Winters, but were you happy to have Alexander back on the station? I mean, I was happy to see her back. Uh, she has that kind of like female sci-fi heroine energy you don't get from hmm. winners. I think she was okay on the TV movie. I mean, it wasn't anything like you know amazing, but I, I don't. I don't remember having any arguments against her portrayal on that episode. Yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting because you you put you thought she was great in the TV movie, and I was gonna press you on that because I actually was gonna get, wanted to go back and re-listen to our TV movie episode and see what she said um, there because I, I don't I don't really remember what I said or what you said about her. I did, but yeah, I, I choose the wrong adjective in the notes, Bob. I choose the word oh, great. Right. Should use the word okay. She was okay in the TV movie. Um, yeah, I don't remember having any complaints about her. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I I like her pretty well, but yeah, I mean, I think she and Winters both maybe have some limitations as actresses, but I mean, I also think there there's limitations of the material they're being given. So I'm not, I'm not well, just right. putting and, that and, on the actresses. And I'm judging 
I'm judging winners by like several episodes she's been in. Like I've seen winners yeah. in almost two seasons of the show. Whereas with uh, that's true. Alexander, I've only seen her in one TV movie that had a whole lot of bad acting. So, <laughs> you know. It's... Yeah, that's true. She was she was by far the uh, by far not the worst part of that TV movie. Right. And I even, but like even the person we I think we thought was the worst in the TV movie was uh, the actress playing uh, Lieutenant Commander Takashima. Yeah, who's who's absolutely great in Star Trek Picard season one. I mean, whatever Star Trek Picard season one's problems, that's not her. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just like inexperience or if it's just sometimes you know a a performer and the material don't mix. One thing I did want to praise since we we kind of took a little negative detour there is, um, and I'm, I'm usually not a big Garibaldi fan, uh, you know, I, I've been known to call him low rent John McClane, but um, his gag when uh, Alexander was running the test on him to determine who the mole was was actually pretty funny. Yeah, and it's really, it's like further proof that he doesn't really take things like too seriously. Uh, I don't know if that's really a good thing or not, but... Uh... Did, did it seem out of character to you? Because I was reading up on some of the things that people were saying, you know, at the time, and they thought that maybe Garibaldi was actually the mole because of that, because of this. And he was disguising his reaction. Yes. And I was like, uh, I didn't catch that at all. But I mean, they were saying it was out of character. I didn't think it really was. I thought it was, I thought it fit pretty well. I think in general, my impression of Garibaldi from the show is that he's both a prankster and a person who takes serious things seriously. And so there's a way I can see it as in character form, and then there's a way I can see it's out of character form. Yeah. At what point in the show did you realize that Winters was actually the traitor? I didn't realize it until the reveal. Uh, that's like, kind of like why I really enjoyed this episode. I think there were some hints throughout, like the, the gloved hand with the gun... Oh yeah, just that kind of I, stuff. I, I, but, I missed that, but that is a good hint. Yeah, but I, I didn't like. I, I didn't really catch. I didn't think catch on to it until the reveal, which was, was great writing. I want to say the first time I watched this, I thought I picked up on it when they were starting to when they gotten past the regular background characters and were into just the people you've never seen before, doing the tests. And I was just, I think I thought when I first watched it, oh, it must be Winters then. Mm-hmm. But maybe maybe I didn't think that, and maybe I'm just kind of giving myself too much credit, you know, a year, a year later in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but honestly, like, Winters, uh, to me, she's really a dull character, and she's got that Jean Grey energy. Can you unpack what the Jean Grey energy is exactly? Yeah, I feel like she gets knocked out and faints from her telepathy all the time, and that's uh, kind of her character. Uh, it's like, that's her character. It's... Oh, something awful in my brain. Oh, gosh, it's awful. Whatever it is. Oh, I'm going to fall over and faint. And, you know, oh, it's she's serious all the time. You know, it's just like a her acting is kind of wooden. No offense. Yeah. On, Andrea, but <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, that I think that's a kind of that's a problem you see a lot with female telepath characters, I think. And it's also kind of the dilemma of just having, you know, telepathy is a pretty powerful power. And so, you know, narratively, a lot of times you need to incapacitate the telepath or come up with reasons why they can't just solve the dilemma. And so, yeah, having Winters or Jean Grey have like an emotional breakdown or something, you know, or get knocked out, like is often a convenient solution to the fact of their overpoweredness. You see the same thing with Troy on a... On, yeah, yeah. On a next gen, next gen. Yeah, although given her powers are a little more limited, it's not as 
pressing as an issue, but yeah, you definitely see the same the same yeah. things. I will say in de in defense of Jean Grey, I think you're thinking of Jean Grey from the cartoon. And oh the yeah, yeah, nineties yeah. comics. Yeah, I think um, I think Jean Grey like in the Morrison run and the early aughts, and then like since her resurrection in the late teens. I, my impression is that she's been written a whole lot better. I, I can't speak to the stuff that was written like just when she was resurrected. I haven't gotten to that in my X-Men run, but in the Grant Morrison run and in like the John Hickman runs, like I think she's a really kind of, really kind of well-written character and doesn't fall into a lot of these kind of cloying female telepath tropes. Yeah. When I say Jean Grey energy, I solely mean the animated series. Like I'm, I'm not referring to the comics at all. I probably should yeah. uh, But she's, try, uh, she's, she's still no Emma Frost. We can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, I love Emma. I just read a comic where Emma, in to get revenge on somebody, makes uh, makes her forget the only person who ever loved her, her grandmother. Jeez. <laughs> it's, Emma's so great. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. I guess uh, in your defense about Ivanova, Matt, you know, not being the traitor, she at least was sleeping with the enemy. We we find that out. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, it's very '90s that they couldn't go any further with the relationship than just implying they slept in the same bed or even really in the same apartment. I don't think they should imply the bed. It's it's I don't know. Did they? Did they not? What, what, what's your take? Uh, I think they definitely did. I I would say that the subtext is strong enough in this one that you can't call it subtext. It's just text. That being said, it is unfortunate that they couldn't go they couldn't go a bit further with it. Like it's you know, it, no, it, no, we're it, not saying no, I wanna make it clear to the listeners, we're not saying as two dudes we're like, Yeah, we want to see two girls kissing. No, it's not like that. It's just Yeah, yeah. We we kind of uh, we just just, fr just frankly acknowledge that there's a sexual relationship. Yeah, that there's a relationship like you don't, you beyond don't, you, them being yeah. friends. Like you don't have to show it, or you don't have to. You can just show it in a very decorous way. Right. But yeah, they like they did the subtext. I mean, I think they did a good job doing subtext that's so strong that you really have to want to not see it, to not see it. But it's still, it's unfortunate that, you know, you can't just call a same-sex relationship a same-sex relationship at this point in 90s TV. Yeah. And there's been build-up to this throughout the season, but with like some of the tension. But this was the first episode oh. where you really see like, okay, maybe they actually do have a romantic relationship together and we just haven't seen it on camera yet. So, so there has, because I, I think I remembered vaguely taunting you yeah. about this relationship but i can't remember what inspired that yeah there were several episodes where they kind of like uh the one that specifically comes to my mind is what was it there's they're both in the they're both in the zookaloo talking to each other and it's okay a, over yeah. something that they both were involved with okay yeah okay like they have to work together on some project or something yeah i, I remember that being there being some tension there and then they just seem say, more, more friendly yeah. as the seasons have gone on. I will say that when I first saw this episode last year, I was, I, I felt like the relationship kind of came from nowhere. I did, I, I liked it. I thought it was a good development, and I wish they'd been more explicit with it. But I, I, I my impression last year, which you're making me reconsider now, was that it kind of came from nowhere. Yeah, the, there's. There's totally some episodes where you see them kind of bonding and becoming friends. Uh-huh. And then 
since there's really, I think of, I think winter's pushing away Garibaldi kind of adds to it as well. And then Ivanova yeah. never really having a love interest other than that one guy that shows up from like her past that yeah tries that to kill Nazi her. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean it just it kind of made sense although it is kind of it is kind of interesting yeah given that it it doesn't seem like either character is presented as you know having as being bisexual I mean not that there's anything that rules out them being bisexual or. It just seems, but it seems like they're both kind of, you know, like finding out that they're potentially into a member of the same sex. And, but it is just unfortunate that in the, doing that, it kind of makes Garibaldi like creeping on both of them, but especially on uh, Winter is like, like even more creepy. I yeah. mean, granted, she may not. Granted, like when Garibaldi's creeping on her, it might, she might just be thinking, I'm not into Garibaldi, not, I'm not into men, mm-hmm. but it, Man, it, it, it does it does retrospectively make Garibaldi even worse. So we do find out in this episode that Ivanova is a uh, latent telepath. Yeah, and I've given you a lot of shit for uh, getting wrong about Ivanova, and I will probably continue to reference it as a way to uh, as a way to humiliate you. But I I want to give you credit because I believe you did call this earlier in. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they pointed. I mean, they argued. Uh, you know, every time they want to scan Ivanova, she refuses. She's made a huge deal out of being scanned by the Psychor. And no uh-huh. one else on the station is like that. And you made, you were always saying it had something to do because she has these like memories of her mother or something that she doesn't yeah, want well, to. That, I mean, that was her argument. Yeah. yeah. So, but and if her mom was a telepath, it kind of just leads you in that direction. You know, like, okay, she's got to have some kind of skill or part of that skill that her mother had. But if, uh, from my understanding, she's not even a P1 correct is that like Um, i i think that's the i think that's a fair interpretation of what she's saying i think you could also interpret it as she's intentionally minimizing her gifts to sheridan to make him more comfortable with the fact that she's been concealing it and with even though at this point knowing what they know about psychor he probably wouldn't report her to psychor you know I, i i think you could read that as a little bit of a a defensive thing because i don't know who knows like maybe like with the proper training she could be like you know a p1 or a p2 or something but um yeah yeah no that i I think but i think that she is a very kind of weak latent telepath is a is an understandable uh understandable interpretation so you know we find out that winters is actually control correct yeah, yeah, she she has this underwritten personality called control that takes over her. And so, in effect, she undergoes what they call in, I believe, that season one episode, Quality of Mercy. They call it, you know, the death of personality sentence that they do for criminals. Um, she, in her, she, in effect, undergoes that. I mean, I, I, like I said before, I don't expect her to come back as Talia Winters in this form. She could come back like Jason Ironheart or something like that, but... I'm kind of glad they went the death of personality route because it really is the only way to ensure that she's not going to go like full chaos on them. If she ever did come back, if you think about yeah, it, they have yeah. to like erase her mind. I mean, it's like clearing out your whole hard drive. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, and this is something I, again, the, the death of personality thing felt a little forced or maybe a little abrupt to me when I first watched this last year, but watching it this year, I, I can sort of see it in a kind of tapestry with a, 
the thing that, you know, that thread of the death of personality for criminals in uh, season one. And then we have a couple of other death of personality plot lines in future seasons. And so seeing it as a part of the whole does kind of make it make it feel a lot more organic and it feel like it kind of resonates more with the world of Babylon 5, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it does fit. I mean, it's what they'd have to do or they're going to have to deal with Yeah, her being this <laughs> dangerous person. So I was impressed that she remembered the story backdoor that JMS left to resurrect her personality, which I did not remember when I first watched this. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I remember, like, didn't Kosh... Uh, so that's that was intentional then. Kosh made a recording of her mind when he was with, like, uh, the Vicar or VCR or whatever that dude's name was, the RoboPimp guy. Yeah, yeah, that weird recording guy with a with a you know cybernetic implants on his head. Yeah. So the idea is that he's gonna they're gonna go in and like uh, re-image her brain. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think that was the, I think that was the original intent, but it just never worked out to bring uh, uh, to bring Winters back. So they never went that See, way. Theoretically, I guess if they wanted to, if they just wanted to replace the actress. They could have like put her in a new body. <laughs> yeah, reimaged her brain on top of Lita's. That uh, they could have done that. Oh man, they I I wouldn't want them to do that because arguably they should have written Lita out of the show before the end of the show. But um, I I really enjoy what they do with Alexander. I I I like some of the plot. Some of the plot lines she's put in are dumb, but some of them I like quite a lot. So. So what is this relationship she's in now with Kosh? Is that some kind of I don't of know. Like, Should we have put it in Thirst Watch? I don't know. I mean, it, it looked thirsty. Kosh is like taking off his clothes for her. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. She, so, yeah, it does seem like she's, uh, I'm going to use this word pointedly, she's developed a kind of addiction to experiencing the true form of the Vorlon. Mm. Which, okay. ironically, like as I was rewatching this scene, uh, just as Kosh opens his inner in his encounter suit, my internet cut out. <laughs> You're not ready, Bob. You're not ready. Yeah, I'm just not ready. I, I can't. I can't handle all the uh, the bright white lights. <laughs> all right. So we went hard on um, divided loyalties. I guess we should transition over to uh, family business. Yeah, and. I'll go ahead and say that family business had no chance in hell against the sh divided loyalties this week. So, yeah, is this the is this the uh, most tonally different two episodes we've ever prepared together? I feel like it might be. Yeah, it's definitely tonally different and not the same. Like when I was watching both, I just remember like I was so like into divided loyalties. Like I had to watch. And I was looking for clues and stuff. And with this one, I was just kind of like sitting back, enjoying it. You know drinking a beer like oh this is this is kind of funny this is almost like sitcom level writing but this is like <laughs> yeah it really it really is very sitcom level writing it's i i remember this show from when i was a, this episode from when i was a kid and i remember that it made me very uncomfortable then it doesn't make me as uncomfortable now but it's still just like i i remember being uncomfortable yeah. as a child in the a plot we've got the latest jeffrey coombs character liquidator brunt arrives on station with the bellful news that quarks and rom's mother Ishka, better known as Mugi, has been earning profit in uh, contravention of Ferengi law. All right. And on the B-plot, all of the senior staff badger Cisco about following through on Jake setting him up to ask out Cassidy Yates. Um, did you recognize uh, Mugi or Ishka, Matt? I did not. 
Uh, I did look up the actress though, because I, I felt like I, for some strange reason, she reminded me of whoever the mom is in Back to the Future. I don't know why she had the same like voice. She does and, have very like sitcom mother energy yeah, to her. I think so. Yeah, I, I don't know what it was about her, but. Yeah, I haven't seen Back to the Future in so long, I can't remember. Apparently, I think Andrea Martin only plays Ishka in this episode. I think they recast her in the future appearances of Ishka. But um, she's also the voice of the villain Mad Harriet on Superman, the animated series, back in the 90s. Okay. So, to kind of give you an idea of this character, uh, Moogie has no issue violating very gender-specific laws of the Frege culture. Like, none at all. She don't give. She doesn't give a fuck. She wears clothes. She makes profit. She speaks her mind when the presence of male non-family members. Uh, what did you think of this character? And why is she both like? Uh, to me, she was both silly and awesome at the exact same time. Yeah, um, I I hate her. It's no problem with like the women's <laughs> lib thing. The women's lib thing is great. You know, you do you, girl. But um, I don't know. It's just everything else. Um, she's almost as annoying as Rom. It's, you can really see that Rom's annoyingness is genetic and you know amplifies uh stuff from ishka maybe stuff from his his dead dad too although i would say that ram is ultimately more annoying than ishka and i also just didn't really like how they presented her doing her capitalist schemes it made no sense if she's so driven by profit she should also be driven by self-preservation and do a better job covering it up yet she's not and she's also kind of willing to do this kind of like selfless uh you know like sacrifice herself for the higher principle thing of going into indentured servitude over like three you know bars of gold press latinum it doesn't even you know come close to come close to matching what you know the total she's managed to uh, accumulate um so i i also thought like that kind of selflessness and like devotion to principle made no sense for a capitalist so i i don't know i i didn't love it the joke, all the jokes about like her wearing clothes or not wearing clothes are sort of funny, but I mean there is there is a kind of like deep uncomfortability to them too. So, in in general, while the episode is funny, I I find it pretty unpleasant. When we we actually get is this our first look at Fereng is it Ferengiar is that how you say it Ferenginar Ferenginar is this our first look at the actual yes okay so does it rain there all the time yes okay. And one of the cool, one of the, not the cool things, one of the weird things about the planet is you have to pay for everything. Did that seem like an exaggerated version of what our future could possibly be, Bob? Yeah, that's definitely uh, that's definitely the version. No matter if Joe Biden or Donald Trump wins in twenty twenty four, that's definitely the future we're heading toward. I mean, even if you go out of the, if you go out of the U S. I don't know if you know this, but you legit have to pay to use a public restroom. Like it's yeah, so weird. Yeah. And uh, do you remember when we had to like pay like fifty dollars to go up on that elevator to that tall building, that the building in Seattle, whatever it was, the tallest building? Okay, so you're you're a little high here. So I'm pretty sure it was twenty five for us uh, both. Oh, well, it was fifty total. Yeah, well, it was fifty bucks for surrounding no, no, elevator. No, 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 no. <laughs> for for us both, like together, like it was like it was like thirteen or so, like each. Oh, oh. and uh, we weren't we weren't paying for the elevator. We were paying for the observation deck. Okay. Which, like, in general, I don't love, like, paying to access spaces. You know, I would think nice spaces like that ought to be well-maintained and for the public. But, like, we were paying to go up to the that observation deck at the top of the Columbia Center, which is the tallest building in downtown Seattle. And it's very very nice if you, uh, if you want to do touristy things in Seattle. 
it's a very good touristy thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It was it was nice, but at the same time, like we we, we pay, it was, you still had to pay to go up to like basically an observation deck. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, the price has gone up, but I know it wasn't uh, twenty five per person because I used to go there all the time. Like when I had uh, conversation partners with the business school out here, frequently we would go out there as like a th- activity, and I I know it wasn't. I, I think it was like, you know, 12 or 13 per person, something like that. Gotcha. I also, it might have, mine might have been more like 10 and your might, yours might have been more like 15 or 16 because I had a student ID. That might have oh, made a difference. Yeah. yeah, that could have been it. I'm just saying, though, we were paying a lot of money to go stand and stare out some windows. Yeah. And was... Well, and you will, you will be happy to know that I did, I did check this. Because when you first said that, I'm like, oh, he's high. There's no way that's true. <laughs> the price, it, the price is now like, 25 a person oh, but, oh yeah. but this is this is like five years later and after like two years of like corona lockdown in seattle oh. so i and, and you know and uh, inflation and you know and corporate price gouging so I, it probably the price has gone up I, uh, quite a bit i would say so what you're trying to say is there are ferengi most likely running this building yes yes okay. i mean for ferengi run all of uh seattle downtown and they're doing a very bad job of too, I might add. Uh, the, downtown Seattle is not in good shape right now. <laughs> it's very corporate and it's very empty. So, Bob, I actually like Rome in this episode. Can you change my mind? I I don't know if I can change your mind, man. Hey, Rom, he sucks. I like him mediating the fight between Quark and Ishka was pretty good at the end, but everything up to that point was really annoying. I I don't know. He legit, like, he, he mediates the fight, and then he's like, I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> That's the best line. <laughs> uh, sorry, man. I, brilliant. I, I hate Rom. It's, uh, it's, I, I, I can't admit that Rom does good things. I, I won't do it. Um, I, I will say in another criticism, uh, Cisco really needs to work on his macking game. It, it's kind of bullshit. He just like comes in and starts telling Yates how to run her business. And then he's big timing her about transporters. I it's just like, Jesus, man, I don't really think this is the way to go about it. Uh, yet she still accepts, uh, you know, as we've established, Jake is a player and he must have uh, laid some amazing groundwork for his dad. Yeah, I mean, he does come in, like, telling her how she's doing stuff wrong and using old school stuff, and it's like, eh. Mm-mm. It was almost like mansplaining. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not somebody who likes to use the term mansplaining or get really judgmental about people's personal interactions, but damn, Cisco. Like, yeah, this, this, is, this is a good example of it. We should, I mean, this should be, like, textbook example here. We can say mansplaining, Cisco this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, if you wanted to use another jargony word, it was, like, very classist because he's, like, assuming that she has, like, the most up-to-date transporter when she's, like, two generations back. Nah, big, big timing, man. Big timing. I like that better than mansplaining and classism. Do you remember where Cestus Three is or what Cestus Three is? No, I don't know what that is. Uh, that's the colony in the original series episode that the Gorn blow up that precipitates the, you know, Kirk versus the Gorn on the desert planet. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they've rebuilt it and they have a baseball team. They got a nice yeah. baseball team going. The only, uh, you know, there's like two people know about baseball in all this universe and Cisco runs into one. <laughs> well, I think the imp- <laughs> I, I, I took the implication to be that Jake knew she liked baseball. And that's why he wanted oh, to put them together, but okay. he didn't want to say that to Ben because he felt like it would be he felt like it would be better if they just discovered it. 
Yeah, apparently baseball is like a 200-year-old sport. Like, or has it been played in 200 years? I thought it hasn't been played in like 200 years. So it's, I'm trying to think of a, a, a real life example of something that is played, that was played 200 years ago and not played now. But I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Well, I mean, it's we, it's kind of you know, it's like we don't study the history of sports in depth usually, yeah. especially like extinct sports. I do think, I mean, this is not a great example, but. Yeah, how there's, like, a lot of, like, Viking revival culture in the U.S. for, like, dudes who are deeply insecure about their masculinity and a lot of times dudes who are really, really fucking racist. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, like, they've done some, like, revival of, like, some Viking sports, I think. I don't know off the top of my head. And, like I said, kind of an unfortunate example. Yeah. Apparently in the – I've read a couple of the, you know, like – post end of the ds9 novels and apparently like in the you know the kind of novel verse that's set after the end of ds9 and voyager like baseball is sort of making a comeback and so like you kind of have teams you know that are sprouting up on other on other colonies and they're starting to do like playoff tournaments and such it's not like babylon 5 where baseball never went away yeah, I would say between the two, DS9's uh, prophecy of baseball's extinction looks a lot more probable at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you recognize uh, the actress who plays Yates, Penny Johnson, from anything else? No, I don't know. Never seen her. So I think she's like most notably in the Orville, the, you know, Seth MacFarlane's kind of uh, self-insert fan fiction Star Trek homage. And then she's the, she's the doctor in that. She's she does a pretty good job in that. It's, I, I'm kind of meh on that show, but she's pretty good in it. And then she voiced Amanda Waller in that Elseworlds Justice League cartoon movie, Gods and Monsters. And then apparently she was in the main cast for an HBO comedy uh, I've always heard good things about called The Larry Sanders Show, but I've never actually watched it. I've never watched it either. Is it on HBO Max? I haven't checked. I think there's a lot of it, so I'm kind of... Yeah, it's something I want to watch eventually, but I, I just, I don't know if I'm ready to make, like, a commitment for, like, a four-season or five-season show right now. Yeah. It's, um, I think it was on in the 90s, and, yeah, it just gets a lot of, a lot of critical acclaim, I think. If you really want to watch a comedy show on HBO, Bob, you got to watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, I know, I want to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but, again, it's just a lot of commitment, a lot of, a lot of time. I, I kind of want to rewatch Seinfeld first and then watch Curb. I feel like Curb Your Enthusiasm is a lot more, uh, there's a lot more adult-oriented comedy. And then, yeah, yeah. Like, just to give you an idea, the first episode is all about uh, the main character having a tent in his pants. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it causing a, a, a lot of issues. Very, um, very decorous way to subvert the iTunes censorship on that one, Matt. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> um, I, I bought the first and maybe the second season of Curb Your Enthusiasm for my old man because he really liked Seinfeld. And I, I, as far as I know, he either never watched it or uh, never, never reported back on it, which probably means he didn't like it because um, oh. usually he talks to me about the stuff I, the DVDs I buy him, so... All right, so let's let's move out of DS Nine, Bob. I think we're good with that, and we'll look at yeah. Thirst with the, Watch. with the mention of the tent, we can maybe yeah. transition over to Thirst Watch. Yeah, 
So I do want to say that despite Divided Loyalties being the obvious consensus choice for episode of the week, um, this also might have the single worst moment in the entire series of Babylon 5. What would that be, Bob? That would be Dylan misunderstanding the word but with two T's. Yeah. Yep. They went there. Yeah. It's just why, JMS? Why? I I do have another theory. Um, so does Garibaldi showing sympathy for Alexander when she first shows up perhaps imply that the man has a thing for teeps in general and not just winters in particular? I mean, I think Garibaldi just has a thing for like any any woman, any female. Anything so. with a pulse that moves. Yes. So, I mean, it, this is not out of the ordinary. Yeah. It just happens yeah. to be that most of the most of the females on, on the show are telepaths, so. <laughs> oh yeah, I hadn't even Yeah, JMS really needs to work on his uh non-telepath uh female representation. <laughs> I mean, we're down to like what the, the the person in charge of the doc, I think, is she a telepath too? Yeah, yeah, uh, Miss Connolly, the 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 president of the uh, Dockers Guild. We we have no evidence that she's a telepath. Yeah. But yeah, Delenn basically seems to even if she's not a telepath, she's portrayed with a lot of the same oh, yeah. tropes yeah, that a telepath is portrayed energy. as. Same energy. Yeah, yeah right. exact same energy. And then for Deep Space Nine and Thirst Watch Bob, we, we had a naked Ferengi. I mean... Yeah, there was a lot of variations of the line of take your clothes off, mother, this episode. It was, yes. it was something. It, it made for uncomfortable watching as a child. It really did. It really did. Yeah, yeah. I... I was asking this earlier. I don't. I don't know what the climate connection is between constant rain and hypercapitalism and hyperpatriarchy, but surely there's some sort of climactic determinism there. So uh, you're you're ready to uh, betray me in character of the week, Matt? Yeah, Bob. Despite your best efforts, you know, to to to, to win me over with, I'm I'm giving it to Rom. Rom's the best character ah, this week. Ah, God, the knife. It's so deep in my back. Oh, God. <laughs> I hope it doesn't hit anything vital as you I mean, jiggle is, it around. This is probably the only time he'll ever be character of the week, but I, I, I enjoyed Rom in this episode. Yeah. I, I'm going to give it to uh, Winter's Control, who I actually thought was, like, a really kind of interesting character and, like, kind of got... Um, Andrea Thompson, the uh, chance to, you know, ham it up a little and what I thought was actually really fun. I, I must confess, I found Winner's Control much more interesting than I ever did find Winner's Prime. And honestly, you know, they could have reset Winner's personality if they brought her back, but they also could have just brought her back as an antagonist, and that could have been fun. Yeah. I mean, they had, they had a way to do it. Could have happened. And I think JMS is probably, like, counting on her maybe coming back at some point. You know, after the dust had settled. Yeah, yeah, that was the plan, but it just yeah. never worked out. Yeah. All right, episode of the week, Bob. Despite Family Business being a very funny Ferengi episode, it did not have a chance in hell going up against Divided Loyalties. So. Yeah, I can't, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. All right. So this has been Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. I am Bob from Cascadia. I'm broadcasting from the top of the tallest skyscraper in Seattle. I had to pay $50 to get up here. That's Matt from the Southland. We'll see you next time, everybody, on Uncanny Treks. Thanks for listening.